0: Telescopes and accessories. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Space Junk. It's time to do it again. We've got another episode for you where we are going to be talking about astrophotography, or the amateur astronomy hobby, all of that stuff. And somewhere out there in the ether tubes is my buddy uh, Dustin Gibson. Where are you at, Dustin?
1: Hey Tony, I'm sitting here in the studio with Bray
0: Falls. Bray, uh, welcome to OPT, man.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. welcome. Bray is a uh, aerospace engineering student at the Arizona, at Arizona State University, and he's also you can find his work on Instagram at Astro Falls. So yeah, welcome, man. It's good to have you here.
2: Yeah, it's awesome to be here. It was a long drive, but it was worth it.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're an imager though, before you look at these images, just be warned that it uh, it's upsetting. This stuff is, <laughs> I look upset, at these and I'm What like, do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I, it's so good. These images are so good. How old are you, Bray? 21. 21 years old in oh, these images. I, I look at his and then I look at mine and I'm just like, oh, I got to redo all my stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think that's what happens. You probably get that a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a very yeah. young and a hobby that's dominated mostly by old guys. So <laughs> I have a lot of integration time I can do compared to them.
1: Yeah, so you you live in Arizona, right? Yeah, Cave Creek. Where is Cave Creek relative to places that anyone else in the world might know?
2: So it's like uh, relative to hour. the weird world. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> it's like an hour north of like the main Phoenix like metropolitan area area. So we're like at the very end of like the big light bubble that Phoenix puts off.
1: Oh, really? So you your dark skies where you live?
2: Relatively, I get good views to the north, but to the south, it's just screwed. It's yeah. And
1: that's but better. you're you're uh, an engineering student how often do you actually get out because i mean that's that's the reason a lot of people say i can't do this is because they're so busy i mean you're an aerospace engineering student i know you've got to be at the top of that busy chart yeah so how often are you able to get out and shoot
2: not very it yeah. depends on like the time of the year like if the schoolwork is going bad like i really can't but on yeah. occasion sometimes i'll um My parents have a house up in Cave Creek, but I go to school in Tempe. So I might like leave my scope out in the backyard with a sheet on it. Mm -hmm. I'll have my mom come out and turn the scope on if the weather is nice. And yeah, she'll let me have like a faux remote observatory. Oh, nice. So you log in
1: even though you're not there and you just have her cover it when you're done.
2: Yeah, that's kind of a rare situation, though, because some people, you know, can't have like someone to deal with their scope for them far away
0: yeah that should well, be explain, a that, that's interesting can you i'm sorry i just wanted to can you while you're on the topic explain your setup uh what you have in your backyard
2: yeah for sure so i have a basically the so i have a mount it's a orion atlas eqg and then i have a little 80 millimeter refractor on it and then i got a monochrome ccd it's a SBIG st 8300 m and i run that all through a laptop that's running team and team lets me run it from a laptop very far away so I can just control everything from my apartment in Tempe while I'm doing homework or something. Yeah, it's It's identical to our
1: remote observatories, except you don't have a building around it. You just put a a cover over it at the end of the night.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's remote on a budget. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Yeah, And Dustin, do you you use TeamViewer 2 to control the telescopes?
1: Uh, yeah, so we, we generally do. It's just a lot faster than Chrome remote. We started with Chrome remote, but we were having, it was just so slow and, you know, our observatories are so far out that most of the time, the only internet option is um, satellite. So it's already delayed. And then Chrome Remote was oh, really wow. slow, so we switched to TeamViewer, and it um, it's a lot faster. But yeah, that's that's generally what we use with people.
0: And that's a remote desktop software. Is that what that is?
1: Exactly. Yeah, it just oh, allows okay. you to uh, to log in. So it's like you're sitting there at the observatory computer, but you're logged in. You know, from wherever
0: your computer is, or your cell phone, or whatever it is you're using. Do you leave it polar aligned and everything, and all set up, and all you got to do is just have it turned on.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uncovered. Yeah, uncovered. Plug in the power cables, and it's off and ready to go. Yeah, I wouldn't want to have my mom polar lining my scope out there. <laughs> that, that might not mom, go well. You, get out there with a the pole star, man. And let's, uh, let's get this going. <laughs> mom i need you to calibrate my auto guider.
1: yeah yeah that's a lot
2: more to ask
1: yeah it's a lot more to ask a complete tear down and reset up each day yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah i want you to carry that mount too while you're at it yeah uh, well that's amazing so you've been at this for how long uh it must be
2: like seven years about now i got started well i got interested in it when i was in middle school basically in eighth grade So like for Christmas, I got a little bit of money and I decided uh, to buy a telescope with that. And it's just been like ballooning ever since then. Um, The main thing, I've just been like interested in sharing what I could like see through the eyepiece. Like I started off with visual like a lot of people do. And then I went in to take a picture with my cell phone camera and I'm like, wow, this is really bad. I need a better camera Mm -hmm. just because, you know, I want to share the pictures it's funny how, I mean, that's, that's
1: exactly my story. You know, it was visual and then holding up the cell phone because you're, you're so amazed when you're looking visually at what you can see and you know, other people have not seen this and you want to share it. Right. So then you, the first thing you think is I got to take a picture of this. So you grab your cell phone and you go through it, but then it's exactly that. It's like a cell phone picture held up to the eyepiece. That's what it looks like. And it's kind of boring and fuzzy and it never does it justice. So the next step is being completely addicted, which both of us can proudly say we obviously yeah, are
2: extremely. Yeah,
1: but that's what happens. Like, there's nothing in between. It's like visual cell phone full addiction.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the human eyes just suck. There's yeah, there's yeah. no middle ground. Yeah. Ian told me you're really into visual astronomy. Oh, is that what he said? <laughs> yeah, ah. yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, I'm sure he set that one there for you, Tony. Yeah, Um, yeah. He (laughs) says that just to make Dustin mad. (laughs) You know, know, we we talk about it, but um, so at some of the clubs here, we find that there's this like rift and there really shouldn't be because astronomy is astronomy and everybody's trying to enjoy the same thing and just kind of explore the universe. But um, we find that the visual observers tend to get very angry with the imagers because the imagers bring computers and things that have lights and visual observers don't want to see that white light when they want to go back to the eyepiece and see whatever blurry object it is they're looking at you know and so <laughs> we kind of uh we make a joke about it here the truth is i have a visual scope set up at my house almost every night that it's clear i have a big 20 inch dob, and i uh, i absolutely love it man there's there's there really is nothing like it we we make fun of that process about how obnoxious it is obnoxious it really is on the visual side you know you're standing on a ladder in the middle of the night in the dark like that's
0: kind of looking at fuzzy patches (laughs) yeah looking at
1: fuzzy patches complaining that it's not going to be quite as not fuzzy because you saw somebody's computer screen you know but the truth is there is nothing like it looking at something in real time visually and just kind of connecting to that like i i agree you always say that tony and i agree with you on that but there's no way to see things in detail that imagers get to see them unless you're an imager.
2: You yeah, know? exactly. There's like there's just so much more meaning to seeing it. Like if you see like a satellite like fly, fly in front of the sun or the moon, black like all connects for you. Like, whoa, like you couldn't get that in a picture. You couldn't see that in real time.
0: Well, over the years, the thing that has struck me with imaging, and I, I, I came from, the last time I really was serious about it was the late the, – the, the CCDs were just getting started, and they were small, 640 by 480, and they were really expensive. Uh, but they didn't have the resolution now. The thing that sticks out when I look at you guys' as astrophotos, whether it's Dustin's or, or Bray's, it's just the – the intricate filamentary detail that comes out in a galaxy photo, like on your stream, I'm looking at, uh, you know, an image that you've taken of the Andromeda galaxy and there are dust lanes in there and there are individual stars in the galaxy that are resolved. And Dustin, you've taken pictures that are equally as, as breathtaking. That is something I don't think you ever could have done in the days of film, just because of the grains. I mean, the grains and the resolution of film was so, small compared to the what you get now with ccds that that's what strikes me the most is just the level of detail you guys were able to get gas clouds actually look like cumulonimbus clouds in our sky right you could they're that they're that detailed and so that's i think that's what's really changed over the years is that ability to get that with off-the-shelf equipment
1: that's the hook that's the hook right there. If you talk to an imager, those are the things that imagers are typically looking for. It's not—it's not enough anymore to just see and drama. It's got to be how much more of this can we see? How much detail can we pull out? And you're right. I'm looking at this image of yours now, and it's—it's it's absurd. The detail. It's beautiful yeah. that you have okay. here. Yeah, it—it it absolutely is. But you know, one of the things we talk about here, and I, and I like these discussions because it always fascinates me how somebody goes down a road like this. But I've never talked to somebody that did it as early as you did. I mean, you said you were in middle school. Yeah, middle school. I God, I was thinking about. I wish I could. say <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> yeah, tell us that story. How did how did that go? What was that like?
2: I don't know. I was just I was always a nerdy kid, and I I am really lucky to have gotten into it so early. Like I could have screwed around and been like a dumbass teenager and done drugs or whatever. But you know, instead I got into Astro so much. Yeah, um, I think mostly like. I just watched so many science documentaries when I was a little kid. And again, I kind of owe that to my mom because she kind of made me interested in all this kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely weird. Like being a, a teenager and like trying to like get into the Astro community and like meeting people that you can talk to about that kind of thing. Cause I remember I would go out to like Reddit meetups for astronomy club stuff. And like everyone would be like middle-aged, like professional engineers. And it's kind of like, it's slightly more difficult to relate to like those kind of people. But yeah, uh, Instagram has definitely been a good way to like help connect with mm-hmm. people that are like my age that are also doing astro. Cause there's plenty of people like doing Milky Way pictures. Right. That like my age, like going on adventures and stuff. And they are also like really interested in this kind of thing too, because they've seen the Milky Way a bunch. So the it's a natural extension to like get interested in the deep space or deep sky objects.
1: Yeah. And I mean you have you've been doing this a long time, you, you know, despite your age, you've been doing this seven years, you said, and and these are, these are some of the best images in the world. They really are. These oh, are, these you. are phenomenal images. And you say on your website, that uh, astronomy gave you a direction. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, uh, everyone was kind of like an angsty teenager at some point, you know, you're like lonely, angry, like, you know, you have a lot of like pent up energy to like, go do something and deal with problems and mm-hmm. astronomy is a really good way to do that because you can like go out into the wilderness clear your head you know take pictures so that was your outlet yeah it's like a yeah outlet so just something to like totally focus myself into i get uh i get really focused into stuff like very hardcore and astronomy is uh it's very good because it's very hard so there's uh A lot you can like dedicate yourself into it there's always problems to deal with
1: that was my next question because there are you know the astronomy draws people because it's challenging it draws uh we always say this here but you know our customer base we are our heroes, not because they're our customers. I mean, obviously that helps, right? But, yeah. but because the people we deal with, they're all these hyper intelligent people uh, like yourself, you know, like Tony, like everybody involved in this whole thing. And I think astronomy draws people because of the challenge. But when you run into those issues at the age of 14 or 15,
2: how does that not just throw you out of it? Because you've got a million things you can be doing. I don't know. i I just saw like, honestly, like Rogelio's pictures. Yeah. And like, you know, (laughs) I decided like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's the goal. And I'm like, I don't know, I, I'm a very dedicated person when it comes to getting stuck with that kind of thing. And definitely, I think honestly, the hardest part about getting into it that young is the money. Cause Mm -hmm. like, I was so interested. I'm like, I really want a camera. I really want to do this, but I need to get a job should have gotten into like goldfish. It's a way cheaper hobby.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. well, yeah, definitely. But, you know, I wouldn't say that just because you were young, that's an obstacle. It's an obstacle for a lot of people, uh, yeah. some of the money involved. So it's not just you.
1: You know, if you think about it, though, as a hobby, I can't name many hobbies, like even so right now, a really nice imaging system. We see people taking a pods with systems that are under, you know, twenty five hundred bucks. Because of the the ZWO cameras or the QHY cameras and a lot of cameras, actually. But then they've got like Mead has a 70 millimeter Apo for 700, 800 bucks. You can get a mount for another 700, 800 bucks. Under $3,000, you've got this killer imaging rig. Think about the other hobbies that people are investing in, like motorcycles or they get into fixing cars or guns or, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. Even video games. I bet a lot of people that are playing video games on a real like hobbyist level. Are spending more than twenty five hundred dollars on that stuff. And oh, that's a good point, actually. Every hobby is going to be more than that, man. So if you think about it, it's really no different than any other hobby.
2: Yeah, true. It's a it's a very passion driven hobby, though. If you like space, it's it's hard to, you know, like every basically everything I make, I spend on astro, right? In the end, so yeah, it's a bit of an addiction as well as a hobby.
0: As a budding imager, I guess is the way best way to describe my state of the hobby right now, going from being a visual observer, what you both of you talk about remote controlling your telescopes and using the uh, computers with, to, to interface your cameras and to point your telescopes. Can either one of you describe what is the best way to do that? I mean, is it better to have a laptop? It seems to me like you can't just have a laptop sitting outside all the time. I mean, I don't know what your exact setup is, Bray, but if you have a a sheet or a cover over your telescope, then that tells me you don't have a super uh, weatherproof situation for your laptop. Do you have to bring one out every time? Do you use something else besides a laptop? And and and, and Dustin, what do you use in the remote observatories as a computer?
2: I actually, I leave my laptop out all the time. I, oh, I usually oh, okay. never cover it. Yeah. Well, because I'm in Arizona, it's well, like. It is Arizona. Never, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's never you not have to rain. worry about a deluge or anything. Yeah. The worst that could happen is it could get a little hot. And things do get really hot. Like, I've gone to pick up my telescope. Like, I sometimes I'll sleep in in the morning and my scope will, like, cook a little bit. The mount will get hot because it's black and it'll, like, burn my hands because it's so hot. Luckily, yeah. the Atlas is, like, rugged enough to handle that. But, yeah, I definitely abuse my gear a lot. For sure.
0: Well, what about you, Dustin? What would you recommend? Do you? Le- I mean, obviously, you have a remote observatory buildings, but do you? Is it just all laptop controlled, or do you use some of these newer, like NUC computers and UCs that they have that are just the computer module themselves? I mean, what do you got? What do you use for the both? Remotes? Both.
1: Well, actually, we're using everything is the simple answer. So well, <laughs> yeah. we, we, have, um, we have a different goal here. We're trying to simplify the process to the point where people with no experience at all can log in and take you know images that they appreciate and want to share and just can start enjoying space and space photography. But we are trying everything. So three of the observatories have desktops in them. That we log into remotely that just stay in there turned on all the time and are connected so when you log in you're it's just like you're sitting there with the scope and then we switch to you remember we did a podcast with prima luce they have the eagle computer that's a power yeah. system and a computer we have one that's driven by one of those we have one that's driven by a, a raspberry pi it's like 150 stellar mate you know and so we're trying everything and really trying to figure out How do we make this cheaper simpler and just something that's so like all of the gear the equipment all of that stuff just gets out of the way and somebody can just enjoy their connection to space so we're trying everything all the time
2: yeah exactly the the whole point is to just make stuff easier because in the end like what will lead to better images is patience and not getting bored and not getting burnt out on setting your stuff And as long as it's easy, then, you know, maybe you could push for like another seven hours of data on an object. So the whole point is just to make it easier to get more time and get it faster.
1: Yeah. And to the point where we even have exactly how we met, right? You're an OPT affiliate. And uh, so we send you equipment right now. You have the Vixen VSD. What do you think about that scope?
2: Actually, It's very fast. It's a. Incredibly fast scope. I I have it unreduced right now at like f three point eight, but you can reduce it to f three. Isn't that funny though? Unreduced f three point eight. Yeah, <laughs> <A>. yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. And I um, I'm using it with the QHY you guys gave me as well, and that's a cool CMOS camera. So already short exposures, super fast. Yeah. I have like more data than I can deal with at this point. Like it took me I stacked a bunch of data on row if is. It took me like five hours to calibrate, register, and stack it because wow. it was just so much data. It's ridiculous, and it is very clean, too. I'm that, is, to-
1: that is the perfect system, that big 36-megapixel full-frame color camera on a scope that's that fast. I mean, it's a small scope. So the, the Vixen VSD is this little refractor. It's like twice the size of a can of tennis balls, maybe, you know, and um, it's super, super fast. One of my favorite scopes. Um, yeah,
0: That's the one you brought to New York, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jenny actually. So that's Jenny's primary imaging scope. For like everyday use, she loves that thing, and um, it has a huge image circle, so you can put any chip you want behind it for the most part. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's fast. So normally my exposures are like thirty minutes, but when I'm shooting with that, you know, it's like five minutes max. You know, yeah. And uh, there, there's a lot to be said for because it's exactly what you're saying. If it's simple, you get more data. You're out there, and you're like, well, what's one more image? I'm just gonna do one more instead of a thirty minute, or some of my images are an
2: hour long subs. I'm like, okay, I can wait five more minutes yeah exactly it's like a patience game and fighting the diminishing returns like the more like resolve you have to keep going then the better your images are going to be i have like over the years like my capacity for boredom with an object has gone way up it used to be like oh an hour of data like god that's so much why would i ever do that but now i'm like 14 hours minimum if it's from my backyard at least maybe like 25
0: so what do you get for that extra time though i mean when you're sitting there for that much longer what do you get what's it is it worth it
2: it's always worth it it's definitely it's about noise and about it's entirely about noise basically so every image you take if you're not familiar will have like some kind of random noise and the more you take pictures the more chances you have to get an accurate representation of what you're trying to image so you need lots of pictures and you can average them together which will bring down how much random noise there is in an image and sometimes noise isn't random like light pollution and you'll need to take lots of data to get past the the signal from the light pollution to get what you're actually trying to image and you can't you can't do that without integration time or speed like with the VSD it's all about the the f number or how much time you put into it
0: right i mean that, that, so just to follow up on that point a little bit for those of you who are stacking images the signal goes up as the number of images so if you took 10, uh, 10 second exposures and you took a 100 of them, uh, that's, that's a, the signal would go up as if you had a thousand second exposure. but the noise only goes up as the square root of a 100 or the square root of the number of images that you've taken. and that is where that really that's where that value really comes in because it, the noise will level off uh, with, the, with the more exposures that you take. So you really get a, a lot of value if you can take a 100 versus say 10 images of the same thing. Because your signal will be so much stronger than your noise.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the other thing that's really helped is narrowband filters, especially because with uh, the signal to noise, the narrowband filters will cut out a lot of the noise. Because obviously, you don't want sodium vapor lights coming in your scope at all. So narrow. But band that only filters, helps with
0: certain objects, right? Like uh, emission yeah, nebulae yeah. and things like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of limiting when you're shooting from suburban skies, but it's worth it.
0: Definitely. And, and uh, the I think the uh, uh, triad filter is a good, a good example of that. It cuts out a lot of the stuff that you don't want when you want to take these images.
2: Yeah, definitely. From, I haven't gotten a chance to, to use that yet because uh, the off axis guider wasn't playing nice with the QHY. But yeah, it's definitely it's interesting that you can design a filter that specifically to have all of those different wavelengths coming in. It's I'm excited to try it out. Definitely.
1: What do your peers say when you tell them that you meet someone and you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I do at school, right? Just another student. Like, here's what I do. Here are my images of deep space. People have to be their mind has to be just blown.
2: Yeah, it's uh, people are pretty impressed. Sometimes I don't like I like to stay humble about it. I can't be like, oh, my images are really good yeah people are always like wow you took these i get like oh i thought this was like hubble or something (laughs) like
1: yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. well it's an easy mistake to make i can tell you so you don't just dive in you're not just like oh yeah these are my images i got fifty thousand people looking at them every day i'm the best like you don't you don't do that
2: no that's (laughs) i would just be a douche (laughs) if i did that people would like (laughs) honestly like i i never tell people about my instagram like i let them find yeah. out yeah. some other way because if i just go around telling people to be like this dick trying yeah.
1: to- <laughs> so now you're like i don't have to tell people you're gonna find it anyway yeah. everyone <laughs> finds my instagram you know
2: yeah they'll uh, see me on the explore page anyways <laughs> i don't need to tell you <laughs>
1: Uh, so I, I bet, though, I mean, it really does have to be shocking for the people that are just like in class next to you when you're like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm doing this weekend.
2: Honestly, since most people I'm with in class are they're also aero majors. They're all like into space. So they're like, wow. Yeah, that's really cool. So you? it's not
1: that crazy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, all those people are used to like spending hours and hours like hunched over a computer there. That's what I do out in the desert anyways. They're used to it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of your your landscape photos because one of my favorite things that Rogelio does is uh, where some of his he calls them spacescapes, I guess. But how do you go about taking some of these? There's one of you, I think. Is this Arches? It says Delicate Arch, uh, where there's a, in the foreground there's the arch, uh, a rock arch, with I think somewhat, it may be you standing in the center. But behind is the Milky Way galaxy. How do you do something like that? What's what's the technique for taking these landscapes? So the beauty about those is that they're like super simple
2: to take. I really just have a DSLR on a tripod and I just go out and take take the pictures and I really like doing spacescapes like that cuz it gives you like a little chance for creative freedom that you don't necessarily have doing deep sky all the time. And the other thing is it's easy cuz well not necessarily easy to make a great image, but it's easy to take an image cuz I don't have to wait 14 hours for an image to come in. So it's it's a really nice thing. Um, I think for that picture, I, um, I also did a thing where, uh, I blend two exposures together. So the, that foreground is like a two minute exposure lit entirely by the starlight. And then the sky is just a quick 30 second exposure. And I blend the two together. Some people aren't really fans of blending exposures together, but I think it's, it's fine to get the most detail you can out of a picture. I do sure. the blending. yeah Yeah, i've never understood
1: why people take such issue with that it's like from the second you get into astronomy you realize or at least astrophotography you realize you have to manipulate the data in a very real way i mean even stretching a histogram you're throwing away a huge chunk of your data and compressing everything else like i don't understand why this one thing people take such a strong stand against you know blending those two images what's
2: yeah it's there's no way to get around the earth spinning and yeah, other than exactly. to track it so uh, yeah i don't see what's wrong we're just trying to get the most out of the images like yeah it's more difficult to do you have to be a better photographer to do it you have to have more understanding of
1: processing to do it why would that be a bad thing i've, I've never understood that
2: yeah exactly it's people should just focus on their own art because you know people who focus on their own art and like don't complain about tracking and stuff those people have images typically
0: yeah there's also a contingent that has a problem with uh, back when 8-bit images were big from spacecraft and stuff they were You know, they would apply a color table to bring out detail that may or may not have been natural for that event, whatever it was. And the color table would they call it false color, which was uh, a misnomer, I think. But anyway, back in those days, uh, people just get really up. Oh, this is fake. This can't be real. It's good. The, The colors they've applied, all kind of colors and doctoring and. And it, there's just this knee jerk reaction to applying any kind of processing to an image. But the minute you show somebody who's bitching about this, what a raw image looks like, they're going to be very unimpressed. You know, they're going to yeah. be like, oh, well, we got to get rid of it. What's all this junk? What's all this crap all over it? <laughs> you yeah, know? you should post so, that well, instead. Golly <laughs> jeepers, I've got to do some processing, don't I? You know, and so uh, the the signals in there, you just got to tease it out. <laughs> And so, I don't know. It's a strange phenomenon. It really is. I generally do, when I'm processing my images, say, golly jeepers. Do you? Because, <laughs> yeah. well, the, it really shuts them down, doesn't it? I mean, when you, they will just, oh, oh he's bringing than, out the golly jeepers now. He oh, yeah. is done. He's thrown down the gauntlet. <laughs> when I break that out, everybody knows just get out of the way. He's me business. Serious. Don't, oh, yeah. they'd be like, oh, yeah. you've done it now. <laughs>
1: God, we take this podcast to the nerdiest level possible every time, man. Every
0: time. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Sometimes the profanity switch has to be turned on (laughs) and sometimes it doesn't. And in golly jeepers time, well, I don't know. Sometimes that may be considered profanity to some people. I don't know. Both ends of
1: the spectrum for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you have a NASA APOD. I'm sitting here looking at these notes. And and I remember when you, when you uh, got this November, I see that on the notes here, you got it November 6th, 2018, the California nebula, what was that like?
2: Uh, those, I didn't expect anything to come of it. I, you know, I got some comments like, oh, submit this for an APOD, and I was like, okay, I'll just like do it on a whim. See what happens. And like two weeks later, I woke up to like a DM. Someone's like, Hey, congrats on the APOD. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, APOD? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't hear anything of it. And I'm like, wow it's like it's kind of a surreal moment because it's like it's kind of a meme getting an apod at this point like i'll see i'll take pictures and be like apod material and then never submit to an apod like i'm always so self-selective about what i'll like even consider submitting so it was like it was really validating to finally get that kind of a thing and that was the first time i submitted as well
1: oh really the (laughs) first time you got
2: one yeah wow
1: yeah i mean most people i so i don't ever submit i actually don't really guess I know
2: how. Um, yeah, that was but, a struggle too. I like didn't know how but I one of my friends got an apod and I asked him and he was like, Oh, you got to email these two guys your picture. Yeah, but it's uh it's organized by NASA, right? NASA apod. And so they are saying
1: you have the best image in the entire world for this day. And so November 6 2018, you had the best image in the world. That's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's something pretty wild to think about. I would disagree because, you know, I see all the problems in that photo. Like if you stretch it a little bit, you'll see how my flats were a little bad in that mosaic. So, I mean, there's always things that are wrong with pictures. And I'm my own worst critic. Always, I think all photographers are, though.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's just part of the nature of a photographer. So, um, every time we do these podcasts, I get little notes from my marketing team. Cause we have, sometimes have people that come in that they're fans of, and you're one of those people. So some of the marketing team, your images, they're, they're fans of, and they have a question for you here. That's a little bit, uh, different than the questions we typically ask, but I'm gonna throw this one at you. So you are 21 now. Yes. Um, it's really important. They know when you had your first drink at 21, was it planned to be under the night sky while imaging?
2: no it was it was actually way worse than that i had a a mic's hard while i was working on homework (laughs) at my desk
1: (laughs) that's not the story i thought it was going to be yeah no
2: very underwhelming yeah that was kind of man the engineering takes a lot out of you especially with the homework so i was like yeah i at least have to have a drink while i'm doing homework to kind of mildly celebrate this Yeah, yeah yeah i've had a few drinks under the night sky before
1: do you think think that program the engineering program has helped you in this at all or has it really not been
2: it's more of like i think the astros helped me with engineering than the other way around because there's like a a problem solving mindset you can't really get just by doing homework Mm -hmm. that yeah because there's it's a huge system is an integration problem to deal with astrophotography so having that kind of mindset to like think about systems and like how they interact, you can't really get from just doing homework. And especially uh, that's honestly what I, uh, the only thing I talk about during interviews, like uh, I'm working at Honeywell this summer and I just talked about Astro for all my interviews, just all the things I've done, yeah. like dealing with the system, processing the data, you know, that kind of stuff is very helpful. Astrophotography is as much an engineering problem as it is like an artistic problem. Right.
1: No, I agree with that. And that's one of the the wonderful things we have here. We have this huge advantage when hiring people is a lot of the people that apply are astrophotographers. So we already know the person we get we're getting has a problem-solving mindset just right out of the gate just by default. We know that about this person. And so I agree with you it is. It is an engineering problem a lot of times. And um I think that's uh, probably a huge advantage for you moving forward. I never would have thought about it going the other way, though, that your hobby is what helped you with school, not the other way around, right? Because you spend so much time and so much focus for people is on their education and then their career after. And you don't think about the hobby being the thing that leads you to progress the other side of it.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like a little, it's an unexpected way to get practical experience right. dealing with the problems. And even processing images, processing images is a huge math problem, signal mm-hmm. processing that right. pops up a lot in engineering as well. So, like having a little bit of mindset, like, oh, Fourier transforms, what are these? Like, mm-hmm. just having the little bit of background knowledge can like click something in conceptually that you wouldn't have gotten. Otherwise, so do you have friends there other students like is this something that is
1: possible because you just kind of forced it to happen, you know, in middle school and just kept chipping away at it? Or is this something that you feel like is feasible for other students to do?
2: Uh, It's definitely feasible. I think you just money is probably the one of the biggest barriers to entry as long as you if you are dedicated, like, you know what you want to do, like, I want to take pictures, and you won't like stop until anything else. And I guess it's hard to have that dedication, you know, because there's a lot of points where you'll get frustrated doing astrophotography. But I guess Yeah, if as long as you have a good personal drive, mm-hmm. then you'll, and you can do anything to get you to where you want to be to take the pictures. That's kind of all you need.
1: So how do you recommend that people get started? I'm sure you get to ask this every day? Like how do you how do you recommend typically that people get started?
2: Yeah, I, I get asked it all the time. But Uh, It's good to start small and work your way up, but at the same rate, there's also, I like to live by buy once, cry once, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to do start small and buy once, cry once at the same time. So what I did and I usually recommend what I did to other people is I started out just using a uh, a DSLR kit lens and a sky tracker. And with that kind of a setup, you can like learn the basics of polar alignment. You can kind of like conceptually understand like what it takes to move to a bigger setup. Then once you have like the small sky tracker down, you can get a big like equatorial mount, mm-hmm. but keep using the camera on the equatorial mount, like get used to the software, right. maybe bring in an auto guider at that point, And then you can like transition into a telescope. And by that point, you'll already have like a good understanding of what's going on. You'll know how to process some pictures as well. That's one of the hardest parts. And yeah, so definitely starting off with a DSLR and I think that's great advice, yeah, because it allows
1: you to keep yourself as the limiting factor, right, instead of just your equipment being the limiting factor of your images, but at a pace that isn't overwhelming. Because a lot of people do jump in, especially if they have the money, they just say, I just want, I want an MIT level system, you know, I don't care what it costs, throw it in my backyard. And then they have this $200,000 paperweight sitting in their backyard because it's just completely overwhelming Too much to learn all at once. What you're kind of describing is taking these baby steps with the most critical pieces in order, right? Like understanding why you have to track it all. Cause it's not, it's not something that makes a lot of sense until you have a reason to know that. You don't, you don't think about like the earth spinning isn't something we have to think about in our daily lives on any other level except for astrophotography. You know, I mean, obviously we need it to, but we don't think about it happening. And so I think learning the pieces because, you know, the mount is clearly the most important part of an imaging system. You can do wonderful astrophotography with just a DSLR and um, a a kit lens if you have a mount that's tracking well enough for you to get images without star trails. But um, it's generally not where people want to start. They usually want to start with the telescope. That's the that's the sexy component
2: of a system. True. Yeah. And for some people, it is the right thing to do just to get a telescope. But. I think you just have to go look at images taken with like the Rockinon 135 f2 lens and realize that you can do a lot with the lens probably even better than what people do with a lot of telescopes and get more data and more importantly, learn how to process the stuff at all, because you could get like an expensive setup and then do like no integration time and then not know how to process the data. And it was like, what was the point? You could have done this for way less money. So it's important to, I think, learn the value of patience and putting in time and learning to process the data before you like try to chew the whole system at once. It's better to like take it in parts and pieces to understand what's happening. Tony's down in Florida,
1: right? And so he has nothing to do, but avoid water moccasins and uh, alligators. That's what he does all day, every day. Like right (laughs) now he's likely
0: dodging. I'm I'm actually doing this podcast uh, standing on an alligator. Yeah. And that's, that's the
1: problem right in Florida. They have that and humidity. And nobody's really sure which one's worse but they're both bad and so I'm trying to give Tony something that I feel like will be uplifting something that's very uh, it, it brings a benefit to his life and he does mostly visual astronomy do you still do visual astronomy
2: no I don't even know where my eyepieces are honestly <laughs> how do we how do we transit how do we help Tony
1: become as addicted as we are to astrophotography what do you think here
2: I think all you need is a you need a cell phone camera adapter and Go take pictures of the moon that's all you need to do honestly the i didn't get into deep sky right off the bat i started with planetary because ah. like that's something you can do more quick quickly with like a telescope yeah so i i started taking pictures of jupiter like things that i could immediately see and was like whoa like that's another planet that's awesome yeah so getting into planetary i think is a good way to step up and you, you can use a cell phone camera for that so mm-hmm. honestly a little cell phone adapter like 25 dollars, maybe is a yeah. great way to like get the bug to get into it Right. No, I, I agree. You know, yeah, the, the one thing advice. I I do think, so I've done some planetary imaging. Do you do planetary? Well, I did when I had a I had a Schmidt-Cassegrain from Mead, but yeah. I've I sent that back, so I don't have a planetary scope anymore. But I've, when I did. I've
1: done some, and so with most things, I um, I prefer imaging. For a long time, I, I was right there with you. I didn't have any eyepieces because I was just so, if it was clear, I was imaging, and I was just completely focused on that. I do have a visual scope now, and it's mostly for planetary, but I actually enjoy visual um astronomy better when it comes to planetary than i do planetary imaging i um I, I guess i never really got into the planetary imaging side but visual is so rewarding when you're looking at the planets when you're looking at jupiter and you can see the moons and you can watch them over a period of time and see them move around and just the whole thing or even the moon yeah exactly the moon, i mean it is extremely rewarding visual astronomy is with planetary with the other stuff like looking at clusters and you know even galaxies i get a little bit bored because i'm comparing it against the imaging side which is going to show it to you in extreme detail very quickly um but i i still think that planetary is the one exception that i could see being where visual kind of wins because it's the opposite that's true. You look at it visually and you can see the sharp detail, but you look at it through the planetary cameras running these quick frames and it looks blurry.
2: Yeah. Planetary is like a really punishing type of photography. If you guys um, haven't ever heard of Damian Peach, I really recommend looking at yeah, Damien Peach's stuff, but it's just all location. It's all seeing, and it's just being at the right place at the right time. And for a lot of people in the northern hemisphere that's straight up impossible because the planets won't go above like 35 degrees right in the summer and that's just you need to go south or towards the equator like people in the philippines like christopher go can put excellent images of like jupiter on like every single night as long as it's right. clear so mm-hmm. it's very location dependent you also need a huge scope if you want like really stunning images like a c14 and that's also very difficult to do because you need the big mountain that's hard to like jump into right away So visual planetary is like more accessible and it's also really good because like you said, you can see moons moving. You can see like, it's just, you can't be looking at Saturn or Jupiter and seeing the great red spot. Right. But with planetary, it's extremely harder, but the, the planets actually, so they're rotating right now. And, um, as they rotate, like around the solar system, they will be at different spots in the ecliptic. Mm -hmm. So right now the, when it's summer, in uh, the Northern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere gets the high ecliptic planets. So the Southern Hemisphere and the equator get good planetary images. Mm-hmm. But in about seven years time, the planets will orbit around to the winter ecliptic. So when it's winter and the ecliptic is high in the north, we'll start getting really good planetary images like the people south in the mm-hmm. south do in Chile, or like with the ChileScope 1 meter. So yeah. we just have to wait, basically. Seven and that's, years. Yeah, seven years, six years. <laughs> enough time to work to get that c14
0: when it comes around just for those of you who might be thinking about why is that the case with with the higher the planets are in your in your latitude wherever you happen to be on earth the less atmosphere you've got to go through uh to to see these things in a real high quality High resolution way, so you want to minimize the amount of atmosphere, and obviously, the less amount of atmosphere is the atmosphere directly in your zenith. Uh, so, getting them as high as you could possibly get them is always a good thing. So that's why you want to. That's why I was just saying, you know, the, the the high ecliptic latitudes are are really important for getting better images because of our atmosphere. You if low in the horizon, you get a lot of scintillation, a lot of uh, a lot of boiling of the atmosphere. So it's just you know it's hard to get a better image. Yeah, exactly. It's oh, Yeah, I just want to comment a little bit on what Dustin said about the visual thing. And I agree that when you're looking at a, I mean, it's a, it's actually spot on. Planetary visual observing is very interesting compared to deep sky. Because when you're looking at, say, the Andromeda galaxy through a 20-inch Dobsonian with a, you know, uh Niggler eyepiece, <clears throat> whatever it may be, it's beautiful. But you're really comparing... You know what, you can see that night versus, and, and that kind of seeing, maybe you could see. The central bulge a little bit brighter than you could the night before, but it's but it's really subtle and it's not the same as if you looked at Jupiter from night to night, right? You would see different different moons in different positions, and the red spot might have rotated a little bit from the last time you looked at it. So there is something very different to see, and in deep sky visual work, you're basically just comparing, you know, oh, today I saw, you know, this this one uh, when I was looking at M51, I actually saw the a little more detail and the spiral arms or whatever it is. Right. So it's um, I totally resonated with what Dustin just said, because it's it really is. I think that's sort of what I always think when I'm looking through an eyepiece is I'm really, really appreciating the planets a lot more than I am the deep sky objects. I always go to them first if they're up for one thing.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. People think of space as like a static thing, like it's never changing. But the planets are dynamic and they're they're always changing like they have weather like the earth. And that's something like when you see like the big dust storm during the Mars opposition, you realize like, oh, wow, like this place <laughs> has weather. It's like a real place. And yeah, it's just a mind blowing thing to think about. Like, oh, wow, there's a dust storm on another planet. And you can actually watch that happen and develop over the course of weeks.
0: Yeah, it's just exactly. ridiculous.
1: It really is. You know, we we talk about sometimes actually we did an entire podcast um, called Is Astronomy Dead? What do you what do you think about that? Do you think astronomy is um, the interest in astronomy is dying?
2: No, definitely not. It's I think it's going way up. Like honestly, people, there's a, an interest in photography going up. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, people will be taking Milky Way pictures. And they'll, a lot of people realized like tangentially from photography, you know, they'll start to get into astronomy and start to be aware of like what's going on. Yeah, and I think there's like a really large growing community right now online about astrophotography and astronomy in general and even with the there's a lot of excitement with space in general like with all the the SpaceX launches I think space in general is like kind of coming back more into the public eye
1: I agree with you and the reason that um, that it was ever brought up in the first place is is one of our listeners messaged me on Instagram just saying you know I think astronomy is dying because all of the funding, look at how many how many high schools have astronomy programs. Like Very few have decent astronomy programs. Yeah,
2: mine didn't at all. Yeah, I
1: mean, neither did mine. And I don't know of many that do. I know of two places in California that are making an effort, um, but I, I don't know of many. And that's a shame, but they were making a good point. Like if all of the funding is being cut to teach people about astronomy, if it's not dead, it's dying and it will but i don't see that and we don't see that so we we constantly monitor traffic for everything we possibly can here for business purposes but we find that it's the exact opposite there's more interest in space and science and you know astronomy and astrophotography than there ever has been and it's it's all because it's all related. Like, like you said, with SpaceX, just this last launch is pissing a lot of people off because he just launched 60 satellites all at once and plans on doing it all the time. Yeah, You know, but it gets the conversation going and you realize how many people are actually involved in that conversation. And there are a lot of people deeply concerned about these things, but also just very invested in the night sky that, that really appreciate its value, if not just scientifically, philosophically. And um, I don't think it's dead or dying. We're not seeing anything of the sort, but it's always interesting hearing from a different perspective, what you're hearing, especially from your peers. Cause you're, you're in a different age group than is typical in the astrophotography community, you know? are they are you seeing an interest in um i guess your group there at school in the night sky is it something that people have an interest in when you talk about
2: yeah definitely like i could talk to any of my friends about like what i'm imaging and like mm-hmm. they have no experience with as astrophotography or anything like that but they're they're just all passionate about space like being into aerospace engineering is a passion driven subject no one's there cuz like they don't like space and they just want money yeah. like you're there cuz you like space and you want to like help advance space exploration and humanity. So anything right. like that, like looking out further than what your eyes can see in exploration, which astrophotography is like a kind of exploration, they're always interested in. And the one of the beautiful things about astrophotography is like the pictures are pretty and even someone who's like not interested in astronomy at all will still take an interest. And I think the advancement of astrophotography helps a lot with like building a public interest in space because it's space is accessible in a way that it hasn't been. Just because like a person like me can just go out in their backyard and like look at nebulas and stuff mm-hmm. like that might have not been so feasible a long time ago for someone my age. What do you think the future looks like for the hobby? Ooh, um fast readout cameras, CMOS cameras, lots of exposures and needing a better computer is what I think the hobby looks like in the future. It's it's kind of hard to say because like all this shift shifting in the camera market like. I think there there's a trend towards CMOS though, because it's just so it's way cheaper than dealing with CCD. And it's all about the making the budget more affordable for someone getting into the hobby. Yeah, because as long as they have that, that's good. So I think as CMOS develops more and the low read noise CMOS comes in, then I also see like less importance in the mount Mm -hmm. because people will be taking like 60 second exposures. Like, why do you need a premium mount? Exactly. So there'll be like more focal lengths, lower scopes, but faster exposures. Less componentry. I mean, if you're doing 30 second
1: exposures, do you even need to guide?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's no need at
1: that point. So really start to simplify everything.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Tony? Well, I think that the amateur astronomers of the future are going to have to deal with With what the professional astronomers of the future are dealing with right the professional astronomers are dealing with right now and that is big data uh right now we've got telescopes taking images by the petabyte and the amateur astronomer is going to start taking this quality of data if what in in following up with what bray said if we are going to be taking lots of 30 second exposures uh, processing all of that computers computers are going to need to be able to handle all that data and so whatever solutions that professional astronomers come up with to handle their data now, to process lots of images without even looking at them, to identify whether there is something that is a distant galaxy, or if it's a star automatically without a person looking at it, those technologies are going to go fall into the amateur community's uh, hands, and they're going to benefit from that as well. But it's going to be a challenge. Uh, All these images being taken on a given night with or without amount is going to be in the terabyte range, you know, uh, before too long. So, uh that's what i so i think the future is going to the future challenge is going to be in data processing and everything else that bray says i think it sounds reasonable you know with and i think if the mounts do become less important that'll only help the hobby because it is such an obstacle as far right now as far as price point um so i think it'll help a lot of people get into the hobby
1: one of our um uh directors of um professional services here was bringing up a great point about the resolution of the new sensors. You know, um, a lot of these sensors we're seeing are going at resolutions of 60 to a hundred megapixels. There's actually one we're selling now that's 150 megapixels. But if you think, think about even at 60, His point was you can have one camera for the first time that does everything. It does your deep space at super high resolution because you can bin if you need to and still be at tremendous resolutions, 15 megapixels. You can shoot um, uh, planetary by just cropping in. Just keep the same sensor and just crop into a tiny field and just run super fast frame rates because it's CMOS right and um you can do the really really deep space stuff because you've got the resolution to pick whichever part of the image you want out and still be in seven eight megapixel range whatever you need to do you can put have one system and do all three types of photography on that one system yeah exactly
2: yeah, another beautiful thing is having those tiny pixels you don't need a big scope to have a good like sampling frequency right. you can use a smaller scope and like get what someone could get with a large refractor do it with like a A really small setup again, like making the mount even less important. Having so, I think the camera, the way cameras are going, I think it's going to shake up how mounts work out a lot.
1: And the camera technology
0: is just exploding right now. Yeah, but a 100 megapixel image, unbend, uh, and let's say you got a, I don't know, a a four bit floater with with each pixel, you're looking at gigabyte sized images. So for every image you take, uh, you're looking at a lot of so data storage and data processing are going to become I think we're the next big thing. Maybe it'll replace mounts. Is a, is is the most important thing? I don't know, but uh, that's a lot of data.
2: Yeah, it is. I dealt with that problem using the the QHY three six seven C and just taking three minute exposures. Like I had a hundred thirty seven of them by the end of the night, and it took my computer hours, <laughs> hours last yeah. night to deal with all of that.
1: So by midnight, you look outside, and your computer's just on fire.
2: Yeah,
0: basically,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's
2: melting at this point. Yeah,
0: well, it's 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 important. I think I think that's going to be something to think about. You know, it really is They're coming in the future of the hobby. Is like, how are we going to process all the data that we're taking?
2: Yeah, it's it's going to be terrible. Like, it, I don't know if you heard about the Van Horizon data, but like they had to fly their data around from the observatories because there's just so much data. Yeah, there wasn't enough yeah, bandwidth. I, yeah. It's insane. It actually
0: physically move, you know, just hundreds of of uh, hard disk drives all over the planet. And the Dark Energy Survey in Chile operates a four millimeter, 500 megapixel camera. And they were using, of course, this was, you know, they were. I think they were still planning on using exabyte tapes then to do it. But uh, I'm sure they've since solved that problem. But they were looking at terabytes of data a night. So, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, something to think about.
1: What do you think about Instagram as a vehicle for this community? I mean, do you think that Instagram is a, a good way for people to, uh, what's the community like for you? I mean, I know what it's like for me, but.
2: Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, the community, I really enjoy the community in mm-hmm. general. I, I think Instagram has like a different, a wildly different, like audience base compared to other astronomy communities out there, like cloudy nights or right. Reddit or something like that. Like the beauty of Instagram is that it, most people are on Instagram. Is that it's like your average person, and mm-hmm. you know you can connect with plenty of people who aren't even interested in it or wouldn't hear about it at all. So you can get uh, a lot of interesting questions. You can interact with a lot of people who who like aren't used to it at all. And as as long as Instagram's around to stay, and I think it will be because again, it's already like embedded itself culturally. Then mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a really good place for an astronomy community to exist. I see
1: Instagram as of all of the communities for astronomy being the fastest growing because of the nature of Instagram, right? Share a picture, talk about it, um, which is really, it well, that's fits ready, well. Babe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you, um, the community is also very supportive, which in photography, I mean, if you're not involved in these communities, you, you might be shocked to find that, especially with general photography. It's more competitive than it is supportive, at least in my experience on the photography pages on Instagram. That's not the case. People are there genuinely trying to help each other. And it's always a very positive conversation for the most part. Um, Some of these more niche communities, it becomes about let me show you how much I know, even if the cost is me being an absolute dick to do it
2: yeah there's a lot of croshy old men on cloudy nights that'll get angry (laughs) sure yeah and and you know the the
1: problem with that is that there's so much great information out there on those that you it's hard to discern especially for someone that's new to the hobby where is the good information and what is the mistake that's going to be a pitfall that's about to cost me a thousand dollars of my money and and ruin this hobby for me and there's no real way to tell because a lot of the people that are most aggressive about getting their point across
2: are the people putting out bad information. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard even, because astrophotography, it's not like a closed form problem. Like there's mm-hmm. a million ways you could go about it, a million setups you could do right. that could be right or wrong. Yep. There's no way to recommend it to anyone. And you just, yeah, it's very tough to get good information. So it's its helpful where you can get a lot of opinions and it's easy to do that on Instagram. Yeah, And I guess there are some kind of like, memes of advice that pop up from astrophotography like that come from cloudy nights like oh like you need to spend like a lot on a mount, and like yeah those things are like echoed a lot but there are like things that are good advice like things that everyone echoes that you should try to follow sure
1: so what's your what's your dream system you have one system you're going to use what's that dream system
2: oh man uh i want a plane wave one meter for sure yeah yeah i want a, I want like a a 16803 on one side and then i want a planetary camera on the other side because cool thing about the plane wave is it it doesn't have uh just two mirrors it has a a tertiary mirror as well so you can flip your light cone and so basically it has a it's a mount called the nazimuth mount i believe so it's an alt as and it's supported by a truss with like two arms so it's like two arms holding up a scope and you can shoot the light cone out of either side you want so you can keep two systems a planetary on one side and a deep sky on the other side and you can switch between the two whenever you want yeah you know they're only like 50 miles
1: up the road here uh plane wave is so when we go visit them there they always have those one meters there and those things every time you see it you just want to
0: cry the thing is beautiful yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you know they're, they're well, so i saw big. i saw their
0: scopes at neef and they were beautiful absolutely stunning yeah, yeah, that 1
1: meter is such a big scope, but yeah, that tertiary mirror, being able to switch from camera to camera
2: that way is uh it's pretty incredible. And yeah, planetary through a 1 meter scope would be nuts. Yeah, it'd be killer. Uh, I got to tour this uh one place at the University of Arizona. I think it's the Richard F. Karras Mirror Lab but that's uh, it's the only place in the world right now that can cast the 8.4 meter mirrors. Wow. And they do it under the underneath the football stadium there, but I got to go see like the 8 meter mirrors like as they were polishing them down. And these things are like the size of a room, like 20 million dollars a pop and they have like eight of them coming together for the Giant Magellan Telescope and it's it's ridiculous to look at. Yeah, it's over 25 feet wide. Yeah, it's right? it's absurd. Oh. And the way they make those things is crazy. They have um so basically if you Take like a fluid in a container and wow. you spin it around about its axis. Then the fluid will take on like a natural parabolic shape where the mm. fluid at the sides will raise up and then the fluid in the middle will go down. And so control basically the
1: shape with the rate of spin.
2: Yeah, exactly. So they get this giant oven together and they fill it with like the best quality glass and then they spin it for like weeks at a time and let it cool down and it'll just form the parabola they want with this huge oven that they spin. And it's ridiculous. I didn't get to see the oven spinning while it's there, but they showed us videos and it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've seen I've seen videos do.
0: too online. What they do is they start with these big chunks of glass. They put in these big giant chunks of glass in there and then they heat them up and and then start spinning. It's just incredible the way they make those things.
2: Yeah, I was surprised by like the lack of security they had in there as well. Like I could have thrown out like a my phone onto the mirror. I was so close to it. They just let people ride through but yeah it's
1: i'm sure they'll really appreciate you making that comment on yeah
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah they
1: definitely if will. if you
0: want to destroy the mirror you can right <laughs> so- that's right that's right astronomy terrorist man that's what you really oh no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so it's
1: um. have you tried that like in your microwave? Because, you know, that thing spins. Have you tried like making your own mirror in your microwave?
2: No, I've never tried. But I <laughs> I saw like a YouTube video once where a guy took like a, a spray like coating and he got like a yeah. big like parabolic shape thing and just yeah. s- tried to make a spray mirror. But no, I've, never, I've yeah. never tried the microwave. One. How did that work out? Did it work? no yeah (laughs) yeah i wouldn't imagine it would
0: well there were people somewhere i I can't remember the context that i heard this but there used to be mercury mirrors uh they take big pools of mercury which is already liquid and they'd spin it and they would use that as an optical element for a telescope but i can't remember the only problem of course you can only point one one, yeah you can't move it and it's basically a you know straight up kind of deal but um somebody that was (laughs) was the thing you got to hope
1: the part that you need of the sky goes directly over you. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what Arecibo
0: does when they're with their radio dish. So mm-hmm. they can't move that thing around either. They and can I move the China's, secondary China's on new Arecibo, radio telescope is like that as well.
1: They can move the secondary, you so?
2: say? Yeah, the, the secondary on Arecibo, I think. They can move it around to get a little bit of pointing.
0: Right. But you're still pretty restricted to where the Earth is. Yeah, What's definitely very overhead. restricted. Yeah. Also, the poison from the mercury wouldn't be good. Well, that, yeah, I don't, I wish I could <laughs> remember the context of that story. I I don't, I, I, obviously, it's not something people can do, you know, in your backyard, but, uh, and mercury is very dangerous, but there were, there was some stories I heard because it's very reflective and, and uh, the, the, the spin of the parabolic shape was easy to create. And you could get bigger shapes, but that's all I know. Well, Bray, can I ask you, what do you, what challenges you now? I mean, looking at your photos, it looks like you've arrived, man. You've figured it out. So what challenges you now when you go out on a given night? What do you say to yourself about I'm going to do this? What what do you what drives you now?
2: The I think the challenges are time, money and finding like something that people haven't done before. And the problem with like finding a creative shot that people haven't done, like taking any of Rahelio's mosaics is you need time and you need a lot of it. And if you want to get around the time problem, you need a lot of money to get a fast scope. So the problems are, it's, it's time. You need integration time to deal with noise. And you can only get so much in a night and so much like trying to live your life. Like I can't go out every single night. I would. But yeah, it's... Astrophotography in general is a time problem. So you need as much as you can get. But I mean,
0: technically, I mean, do you, uh, do you, what, what, what challenges you with your telescope and with imaging? Like, I'm looking at your, your image of the Eagle Nebula and you talked about um, mosaics just now. You just meant, this was a mosaic that you had made, wasn't it?
2: Uh, The Eagle Nebula. Um, was that a mosaic?
0: Maybe I'm, maybe, okay. No, I guess this wasn't your mosaic, but um, some, some of them are mosaics. Is that a challenging thing to do or, You know what I guess what I'm trying to figure out is where where's your frontier? What's the frontier
2: is definitely mosaics. I I'd have to agree with that. But being able to take a good mosaic is like 90% uh a processing problem. It's it's a processing problem and again it's a huge time problem because the the issue with to do mosaics consistently, you need to have like your telescope gear like down. You need to like have everything figured out, you need everything automated so you can Function it while you're sleeping. But the problem is the variability in conditions and trying to make everything consistent and getting it in a short amount of time. Because the problem with the mosaic, say you're taking like a hundred hour mosaic, which is pretty absurd, you're going to maybe get what, like three clear nights a week and the moon is going to be changing constantly. So you're going to be taking it with like month long gaps. Conditions are going to be like extremely different between any of those images. So the the technical problem that arises is just getting data that matches and getting good data and doing it in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, I can imagine but, the flat mean, fields patient. that
0: you take would would vary differently from sky condition to sky condition, wouldn't it? So if you're taking flats when a full moon, I don't know how you take your flats, but if if you if you use sky gradients like some people do, that would be dramatically different from one night to the next uh, than if you say maybe use a dome flat or something like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Flats are actually, if talking about operating my scope, flats are always a challenge no matter what. It's getting good flats. It's the most annoying part about imaging every night. Mm-hmm. Generally, I've had like many an image go wrong because I had bad flats. Like you might get a dust, like if you're shooting with the Richie creation and a piece of dust flies into your camera while you're imaging and it pops up in one flat, but not another and something, or if it pops up in your data and it's on your flats you're just kind of screwed. So yeah, <laughs> <you> know, fl- <laughs> flats are the biggest challenge. And the way I go about doing them usually is I, uh, I put an iPad on top of my scope. I point my scope straight up and I just lay an iPad. Oh, on that's it. clever.
0: Oh well, yeah. Wow. Well, that would have, that's definitely a new whippersnapper thing. I wouldn't have thought of that being an old timer. That's a good. Idea, and
2: then though. what do you set the iPad to? Like what, how do you just get it to be a full even white light? Uh, It just needs to cover up the whole aperture of the scope. I like leave it at a brightness that uh, I can hit reasonably with my or hit a good ADU value. So my my S big CCD, the smallest exposure I can take is a half a second exposure without getting the shutter of the camera in the exposure. So I set, of course, I set the camera to half a second and then I change the brightness until the uh, the flat values are good.
1: I guess what I'm saying though is, how do you get the like what what app are you in to just get an even or a white light instead of having like your apps and everything?
2: Oh, uh, just like download a white picture. Just a white picture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it wouldn't matter too much even if there were like things going around on the screen like if you pull up like the notepad it has like a textured background but it won't matter because it's so out of
0: focus (laughs) so i really dated myself by saying dome flat because what used to happen is people used to shine a light on the side of the wall and take an image of the white light on the on the wall but uh, that had gradients in it too and uneven lighting and problems with it even in that sense so yeah that's a much 20 that's a much better 21st century way to go about it
2: (laughs) yeah it's definitely more consistent when uh when I have my mom running my scope though, and I'm far away from it, I I do use sky flats sometimes, and those are definitely hard because the, the brightness is changing. Like yeah, as you got to do them in twilight,
0: <clears throat> don't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you got to take the sky gradient. Well, the sky gradient. Hopefully, you won't get too much of it, but you'll get some no matter what.
2: Yeah, d- PixInsight can handle it. DBE is a beautiful thing.
0: Ah, right, of course.
1: So uh, awesome having you here in the studio, man. Thank you for making the trip out from
2: Arizona. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. It's definitely awesome.
0: Yeah, our guest today was Bray Falls. He's an aerospace engineering student at uh, Arizona State University, and he's also on the Instagram verse as at Astro Falls. And so, definitely check out his his images, folks. Follow him and and uh, get in the conversation because this guy can take some images, man. So, thanks thanks for sharing your your experience and your techniques and all of your uh, in, you know knowledge with us. Because uh, wow, you're definitely someone to emulate in the astro imaging community. So. Thanks for taking time out to talk with us.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: me on. All right. Well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to our humble podcast. Please check us out at spacejunkpodcast.com. We have a whole website now where you can interact with us. So please check it out. And also feel free to email any questions or comments to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. And I will read those and respond maybe on air. So thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up.